Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Well, Courtney, you know, a dear friend gave your Uncle Clyde and me a pillow that's embroidered with the words, love makes a house a home. You know, that's one of my favorite pillows. And, you know, speaking of sentiments about home, who could forget Dorothy's memorable line from The Wizard of Oz? There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Courtney, I think most Americans believe in the sanctity of the home. It's that singular place where you can go to feel secure and relatively safe from harm. But our series, Massacres Denied, is all about how from 1863 to the present, Black African-American homes have been the target of domestic terrorism, violence, and threats. And although this ongoing violence rooted in systemic racism led to loss of life and property, is rarely spoken about today. And I'm sure the history of systemic racism and violence and domestic terrorism was the last thing on Breonna Taylor's mind as she laid sleeping next to her boyfriend in Louisville, Kentucky on March 13, 2020. Sadly though, her murder at the hands of the police department issuing a no-knock warrant is something very deeply rooted in the lack of peace and safety African-Americans have felt since being brought to this country. The deep knowing that at any moment, any one of authority can come into your home or no authority can come into your home and either do you bodily harm, throw you out into the night or even kill you is nothing new. The fear is very real. It, it is. And it's unfortunate because we'd love to believe we can go to our homes and be safe. Now, uh, I've been looking at a book uh, titled As Long As They Don't Move Next Door, Segregation and Racial Conflict in American Neighborhoods by Dr. Stephen Meyer. And it chronicles the history of white resistance to housing integration during the first two thirds of the 20th century. Now, the book is about housing discrimination and segregation and violence and massacres over residential space contested along racial lines. Now, it's a story of Black African-Americans seeking to gain access to and occupy housing in neighborhoods that whites consider to be their own. And the part of that story about whites' efforts to thwart, prevent, and deter those efforts and to exclude and expel Blacks from those neighborhoods. The book is amazing. Now, Meyer discusses the persistent and pervasive deep-seated systemic racism through discriminatory government and institutional policies and practices that fueled the intimidation and violence used by whites who refused to accept blacks as neighbors. In fact, during much of that time, racial conflict and violence over housing were more common in the North than in the South. 
For example, in 1910, Baltimore became the first city to ban African-Americans from living in white neighborhoods. And then the practice spread west to Oklahoma City and north to Colwyn, Pennsylvania, uh, and eventually all around the country. Now, even into the 80s and beyond, the fear of Blacks moving into certain neighborhoods prevails. I even remember um, as a kid, my parents first home was in a pretty affluent neighborhood where I grew up in Pennsylvania for part of my life. And it only took a few interactions um, with our neighbors to realize we really weren't wanted. Now, in an article posted on the ProPublica website entitled Get Out, Black Families Harassed in January 2019, they had a series called Documenting Hate. They spoke with Janine Bell, a lawyer and an author of the book called Hate Thy Neighbor, move in violence and the persistence of racial segregation in American housing. Bell said this, no corner of the country has any claim to the immunity of this problem. She also noted that the total of, of number of these incidents, incidents is not reliable or captured in any formal data kept by federal or local authorities. And that's because she said many of these incidents go unreported. A lot of times the people that are targeted either don't know that they're being a victim or, of a crime or don't trust the authorities to help them. That is so true. Now, resistance against Black African-Americans moving into white districts occurred more commonly as thousands of small acts of terrorism. And so that would uh, speak to what you just said, that sometimes people didn't even know uh, that they were being terrorized or victimized. Uh, now, that resistance persisted throughout the 20th century, but most of the most vicious and extensive violence occurred in the North during the two decades following World War II. Frequently, the attacks were aimed at Black owners of single-family homes. Now, middle-class status based on education and income offered no protection against racial crimes. Even wealthy Black African-American celebrities have been victims of these racist crimes, and we're going to talk about a few of those later on. Now, the impact of the crimes ranged from serious physical injury and death, financial uh, impact, property damage, cancellation of insurance, medical expenses, and so on, and psychological damage, emotional trauma, and, you know, chilling effects on these people. Now, I know, like I stated before, there's no official record, but has anyone tried to get a concrete number on these incidents? Well, unfortunately, there is no really concrete number recorded, uh, but the accounts date back to the late 19th century, showing that Blacks moving into predominantly white areas faced a substantial risk of encountering racial hostility and become victims of crime to their person or property. I would say that housing-related crimes, major and minor offenses, undoubtedly number in the thousands, and many experts agree. Now, whites' actions in opposition to Black re residents range from clearly criminal actions such as bombings, arson, cross burnings and vandalism, as well as those uh, offenses that are protected by the First Amendment such as offers to buy the home and the use of racial epithets. Moreover, many acts recounted in Meyer's book and elsewhere may or may not have constituted crimes, depending on the particular state uh, and the criminal code there. But uh, those facts are kind of sketchy. Regardless, though, people have been harassed 
terrorized and even murdered for trying to move into what are considered all white neighborhoods. Now the crimes, as I said before, were not limited to the South. And in fact, they occurred more frequently in the North and the West. White Southerners, they were used to having blacks living in close proximity, dating all the way back to slavery. And they didn't find the presence of black African-Americans nearby threatening to their dominance and supremacy. Thus the old saying from the past, the South doesn't care how close a Negro gets just so he doesn't get too high. And the North doesn't care how high he gets just so he doesn't get too close. So Aunt Carol, we probably don't have an accurate number of these crimes where that quote is very telling because African-American victims of housing related crimes like we stated before, don't report them to the police or even make them public. The reason being, A, you cannot trust the police, even in cases where it was reported, nothing happened, and they fear even more retaliation. If the media got a hold to it, or um, if other white people heard about it, they would attack them even further, so they had nowhere to go for help. Yeah, you're right. You know, you'd love to think that you could go to the police, you could go to the media, you could tell, you know, somebody that would help you, but not, um, there, there was no apprehension or prosecution of the offenders. And a lot of times the police actually stood by and watched, if not in some instances, actually participated in these acts. Now, cities around America, such as Detroit, Boston, Los Angeles, and Chicago were plagued with this violence. Detroit, witnessed a continuous stream of housing-related crimes between World War II and the 1960s. There were over 200 incidents of Blacks moving into predominantly white neighborhoods in Detroit, many of which involved window breaking, arson, vandalism, and physical attacks. Now, in Boston, this violent resistance continued into the 1970s, culminating in the homicide of a young Black man by two white youths. And I remember this incident. In 1973, two 19-year-old white public housing residents attacked and killed George Pratt. Uh, Pratt was a 17-year-old high school junior and former resident of the uh, housing unit. The two ex-Marines banned by throwing bottles at him and ended by gunning him down from the roof of the building with a rifle shot to the forehead. Now that is horrific. And I know we can only, you know, assume that education, status, and wealth did nothing to protect uh, Black people from racial profiling. You think you move to a better neighborhood, you get a little bit of respect. But it didn't save them from racial uh, insults and becoming victims. That's true, Courtney. Uh, the perpetrators of these crimes targeted doctors in Detroit, Atlanta, Dallas, Birmingham, and Long Beach, and a lawyer in, ba in Baltimore and other middle-class type folks. And as I said earlier, uh, celebrities weren't exempt. Race always took precedence over everything else. For example, the renowned singer Nat King Cole and the baseball star Willie Mays were victimized in their homes in Los Angeles and San Francisco, respectively. When Nat King Cole's family moved into a white LA neighborhood in 1948, they were first offered a buyout. Now, when they declined to sell, the neighborhood intimidators burned the N-word and N-word heaven on their front lawn. Now, in 1957, a long campaign of intimidation against a white homeowner who planned to sell a home to Willie and Marguerite Mays almost prevented him from selling to them. 
But there was counter pressure from a civic organization and the media and um, the mayor. And so it ultimately it led him to make the sale. But shortly after the Mays moved into their home, someone threw a rock through the front window. Now, later on in 1965, the professional basketball star Bill Russell experienced an attack on the other coast. Criminals broke into his home in the mostly white Boston suburb of Reading, destroying all his trophies, trashing his house, and leaving feces in his wife's bed. Oh, that's horrible. It is. It's just disgusting. Um, but don't forget the people who stormed the um, Capitol, they pretty much did the same thing and left feces in our nation's capital. So, Real classy. Yeah, yeah real classy. <laughs> now back to the West Coast. Uh, some of you will remember the successful Black actresses Hattie McDaniel and Louise Beavers and Ethel Waters. Uh, these three women were defendants in a 1940 civil suit in which white plaintiffs argued that they had violated a racially restrictive covenant in the Beverly Hills neighborhood in which they lived. The actresses won but the subsequent violence against Black African-Americans moving into predominantly white and relatively wealthy neighborhoods in Los Angeles demonstrated that whether the law was on their side or not, they could lose their property or at worst, their lives. And it doesn't end in the 40s, 50s or 60s, Aunt Carol. In 1997, Co now Coach Doc Rivers' Texas home was burned down and the family dog was killed in a racially motivated attack while he was the assistant coach for the San Antonio Spurs. And in May 2017, the front gate of basketball superstar and civic activist uh, LeBron James home had the N-word sprayed across his LA home front gate during that year's NBA Finals. Well, so it, it, did, it never really stopped. This kind of uh, intimidation, terrorism, and vandalism just keeps on coming. Now, these crimes follow a pattern of strategic escalation after legal and other extra legal methods fail to expel a family, uh, things got serious over time. Now, the crime may have followed a series of unsuccessful removal strategies, and they kind of went like this. First, the neighbors would try to persuade the family to leave or offer to buy the house, sometimes even offering to pay a premium or moving expenses. Uh, then maybe the police would get involved and try to get them to go. And then elected officials would ask them to move or private citizens would uh, start making threatening phone calls or letters. Well, that was the first round. Now, when, when Black African-American families didn't respond to that, whites turned to illegal methods such as cross-burning, firebombing, gunfire, home invasions, and as in the case you described earlier, total home destruction. Now, sometimes other perpetrators went to great lengths to remain anonymous, primarily by using the telephone or the mail. And they would carry out attacks this way by operating under cover of dark or uh, driving quickly by attacking and, de and departing before being identified. And so another, that, that's another reason why sometimes people couldn't uh, press charges because they couldn't see who was doing these things to them. Now, as always, I like to add in a movie or TV reference, but those acts that you described follow the pattern in the Amazon Prime series them about a black family who moves into a Com the Compton neighborhood in 1950 
And as well as Lovecraft Country, their episode on season one, episode three, Holy Ghost, when the lead character, um, Letty Dandridge, moves into the west side of Chicago. That pattern was followed in all those TV instances. So it's life imitating art, imitating life. You're right. You're exactly right, Courtney. But who would in real life, I mean, were these goons, goblins, gangsters? Who would who was actually doing these acts? Well, for the most part, my dear niece, these would have been considered good citizens. Now, the first group of perpetrators, I'm going to tell you about three different groups. The first group of perpetrators were mobs. Now, they ranged in from 50 to 10,000 people with most numbering between two and 2,000, uh, 200 and 2,000 folks. Now, while the white supremacist organizations did play an important role in uh, whipping up these mobs, many ordinary, generally law-abiding mainstream citizens engaged in racial resistance and willingly joined these mobs. Now, the second group of people, and this may surprise our audience, was women. They were frequently in the forefront of the resistance. For example, in 1940, women in Dallas, Texas, now my hometown, stoned the house of a Black African-American family breaking windows. Later in that decade, Detroit women made hundreds of phone calls threatening personal harm and property damage because Black African-Americans were trying to enter into a white neighborhood. Now, in 1954, a white woman threatened to throw a bottle of ammonia in the face of a Black Amer African-American woman had, who had moved into the white-occupied Trumbull Park public housing development in Chicago. Now, the final group of, of perpetrators was children. Now, these were usually kids who had been taught to be um, racist and to believe in racial subordination. Children, especially teenagers who saw their parents planning and carrying out criminal acts to force Black African-Americans out of the neighborhood would join in. They'd vandalize homes, they'd break windows, throw sto uh, stones, dump garbage on the porches. But unlike most of their adult counterparts, teenagers were also the ones who committed physical assaults. It brings a new meaning to the term women and children first. But how could these acts be justified? Well, Courtney, tell the truth, you can't justify them, but I'll tell you a few things that white folks did. Uh, first, being worried that, quote, Black African-American homeowners would bring down white property values, the federal government supposedly got involved, and the Federal Housing Authority at the time refused to insure Black African-American homes in white neighborhoods. So that resulted in redlining. Uh, so Afri Black African-Americans were steered to what were called hazardous inner city uh, neighborhoods, and whites were steered to desirable suburban neighborhoods. Uh, also, the government underwrote uh, the GI Bill in 1945, and I'm sorry, 1944, the GI Bill uh, in such a way that Black African Americans really could not qualify for that money. And then there were discriminatory lending and racial covenants that were written into the deeds of homes, and these weren't outlawed until 1968. Now, another way to justify uh, not only, you know, the idea of property values may be declining. Another way to, this, uh, to justify this violence is that whites believed that this was the natural order of things and it had to be preserved, that mixing the race 
races was not acceptable and that whites as a superior race had an obligation to subordinate the inferior race. And the inferior race, of course, would have been black African-Americans. Now that responsibility they believed included maintaining the racial purity of quote, their neighborhoods because permitting blacks to live among whites was equated with social equality. And whites claimed that bloodshed and riots were provoked by blacks trying to move into white sections, not by them. Uh, an example of this very negative approach and thought, thought process uh, is seen in a 1948 campaign speech by the mayor of Dearborn, Michigan, which is the suburb of Detroit. And he argued that, quote, whites don't have to live with the N-word because this is a free country. Very classy mayor. But if this is a free country, shouldn't Black African-Americans have the right to move where they please? Well, you would think so, Courtney. But let's take a look at Chicago, Illinois. Chicago is perhaps the outstanding example of a place where racial crimes occurred around housing conflicts during most of the 20th century. And I remember my uh, mother-in-law telling me at one time about how bad uh, Chicago was in terms of segregation and the racial strife around housing, but I had no idea what she meant until we got into this research. Now, the crimes in Chicago became the norm, just like racial violence and lynchings, church bombings uh, became commonplace in the South. When Dr. Martin Luther King and local civil rights activists came in 1966, trying to integrate housing there, they were met with extreme violence, extreme violence. And Dr. King said, Southern racists could learn something about racism from Chicago whites. That's how bad it was. They ran Dr. King out of the North. Oh, wow. Now, yeah, that's pretty serious stuff. He couldn't even stay to uh, uh, try to integrate housing. So Chicago was a tough one. Now, Mayor Daley uh, at the time, Mayor Richard Daley at the time, asserted that Chicago was not segregated. So to test that assertion, in 1964, a civil rights worker bought a house in Daly's Bridgeport neighborhood, and it had three apartments in it. Now, the intention was to rent one of the three apartments to Black African-Americans. Now, two Black African-American college students moved in on a Friday. And over the weekend, a white mob chanted hate messages and threw rocks and bottles at the building. Shortly after that, the police came and they removed the students' belongings while they were at school. And then the neighbors entered and smeared the walls with excrement. Now, when the black African-American students returned from school, they were taken to the police station and told that they had been evicted and no longer lived in Bridgeport. So this is just one example. And it seems that Chicago though was a hotbed of resistance to black African-Americans moving into white neighborhoods. So I believe you have a story that shows not only Chicago, but the suburbs around Chicago generally didn't take kindly to neighborhood integration. You're right, Aunt Carol. The city of Chicago is known for many great things. Deep dish pizza, the bulls in the 90s, some of the greatest hip hop, not only in the Midwest, but the world. But Chicago has its dark side. 
from Al Capone and organized crime, having several serial killers, including America's first, call the city home, even the Great Chicago Fire and several other strange and violent occurrences add to the city's dark reputation. But like you showed in the example before, one of the darkest parts of Chicago is its history with race riots, race and race violence, especially when, com when it comes to housing. And nowhere is that shown in all of its hideousness is in the Cicero race riot of 1951. Now, after World War II, veterans returning home, um, including Black professionals, were tired of living in the overcrowded neighborhoods of the south side of Chicago, despite its reputation of being called Brownsville or Bronzeville, which was the Harlem of the Midwest. These hardworking folks felt like they deserved and earned more than the cram, than the cram neighborhood provided. Those who were brave enough pioneered to the west and southwest sides of Chicago. And although they did find the homes they were looking for, they quickly learned that their white neighbors who had already staked their claim in these neighborhoods did not want them there. Black families were greeted with attempted arson, bombings, and angry white mobs at every turn. And as frequent as these acts of residential racial terrorism were in the city, when Harvey E. Clark and his wife, Johnetta, found an apartment in the Chicago suburb of Cicero in June, 1951, it probably seemed like a dream and neither of them had imagined the nightmare that would await them. Now, Harvey had moved from Chicago, moved to Chicago from Mississippi along with the Great Migration. And he and his wife were college graduates and met while attending Fisk University. Now, after serving as an Air Force uh, person or an Air Force personnel in World War II, Harvey became a city bus driver for Chicago. But as he and Johnetta welcomed their first and second child, the two-room tenement they shared with another family of five on the south side was becoming way too cramped. So they were more than excited, excited to begin their new life in their new apartment. However, soon things began to unravel. Oh boy, it looks like a downturn is about to happen. It started with the landlord, Mrs. DeRosa. Now, Mrs. DeRosa, she is not a, a beacon of racial equality. She had some tenants move out and she had to pay them back some money. So she needed to get some tenants into that sister apartment fast. So we don't know what her thought process was when renting to the Clarks, but she did. Now, a high ranking official in Cicero learned about what she had done renting to the African-American couple. And he warned Mrs. DeRosa, there would be trouble if that family moved in. But not to be scared away, a moving truck arrived at the apartment building on June 8th, 1951, and things began to escalate. The rental agent who came to make sure everything was gonna go smoothly and assisted you know, with the actual renting of the apartment had a gun pulled on him by a police officer who marched him out of the house with a gun to his back. Oh boy, just like I said <laughs> earlier, sometimes the police were part the of this. Were, they <laughs> play a big role in this story and I'm giving them the side eye the whole time. A crowd of neighbors soon gathered, um, looking and trying to intimidate the movers and Mr. Clark. Now the police warned Mr. Clark to get out of the neighborhood or he would be arrested and put into their special kind of protective 
custody. Which basically means you're going to jail for trying to do what uh, most Americans ought to be able to do. Hmm. Exactly. A detective warned Clark, I'll bust your damned head if you move in here. Now at six o'clock, Mr. Clark was still trying to move into his family's new apartment. He was grabbed by 20 police officers. And that's when the police chief met him face to face and said, get out of here fast. This is pretty serious. 20 police officers and the police chief. And the police chief. He said, get out of here fast. There'll be no moving into this building. And Clark was hit eight times in the head and about the body and shoved into his car. And he, they sent him on his way. As he drove off, the police shouted, get out of Cicero and don't come back in town or we'll put a bullet through you. Mm. Oh my, I, anyway, what happened next? <laughs> now a suit was filed by the NAACP against the Cicero Police Department. And on June 26th, the Clark family came back to Cicero with a court order in hand and much to the disdain of their new white neighbor. And they finished their move completely on July 11th, 1951. But as the move ended, a crowd began to form uh, around the building once again. And after the break, the list, our listeners will learn how the Clarks spent their first night in their new home. Well, the Clarks were pretty bold because after what happened to Mr. Clark with the police and the police chief and being told we'll put a bullet through you, I, I don't know that I'd come back with a court order because obviously a court order can't stop a bullet. But based on the research we've done on this kind of violence, I shouldn't be surprised at what you've described so far. But believe me, every time I hear stories like these, I'm in shock and to be perfectly honest, traumatized. So I need a break. Let's just take one. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? And connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? See you there. Well, Courtney, we're back. And when we left off, there was a pretty high level of violence directed against the Clark family, and they're still going to try to move in. So what happened? Well, when we left the Clark family, they had taken that bold step of moving into their new apartment in Cicero, Illinois. Kind of crazy that moving into an apartment is a bold step. Step. Mm. But and despite receiving threats by the local police, uh, they moved forward. But as the day turned to night, the crowd that had shown up only to intimidate the Clarks that afternoon had turned into a vicious mob of 4,000 people. 4,000 people outside this apartment. Mm-hmm. Now, after word had spread of fun at the Clarks' apartment, Men, women, and teens uh, appeared out of nowhere surrounding the house. Now, the police had sent over 60 police officers who were doing nothing more at, at best as being spectators and at worst being participants. They turned a blind eye and escorted women over to a rock pile where they could pick up rocks and throw it at the windows. Um, but what we don't take into account is other people lived in the apartment building. So not only were the clerks a target, the other residents were targets as well. 
Mm. Now, under cover of darkness, the Clarks and the other residents escaped into the night. Uh, but that was only the beginning. Now, the legendary Black newspaper, the Chicago Defender, called it a wild racist binge. And Aunt Carol, you know how I love act to get the actual news of the day to either get an eyewitness account or a journalist view. So this is what the, the Chicago Defender published in their July 17th article. It was a front page article about this melee. It was a menacing crowd and continued to grow, reaching upwards of 6,000 people before the group of yelling hoodlums smashed their way into the building. Once the Clark's new third, once inside the Clark's new third floor apartment, riding used overturned appliances, kicked holes in the wall, tore the radiator from the wall. All the family's belongings were broken or tossed out and out of the already busted windows. Not even the family's $900 piano was spared. The massive heap of furniture, rugs, clothing, was all displayed outside and set afire to the delight of the cheering crowd. The building's hallways were wrecked and several other apartments, all rented to whites, suffered damage and had to be evacuated. Now the Clarks did not physically get harmed but lost everything they had accumulated in their nine years of living in Chicago. Mm, my gosh, so similar to what I mentioned earlier, they lost physically uh, in terms of what they owned. So all of their belongings were gone, but also they, I'm sure this had to be outrageously traumatized. And just think of the other people that were living in that apartment building, they were definitely victimized. Exactly. They lost nine years worth of belongings in one hour. When asked about it, uh, Harvey E. Clark Jr. and his wife were stunned by the reaction. Clark is quoted as saying, I keep asking myself, why all this just to keep Janetta and me from moving into the apartment? But he vowed to return. No. <laughs> he said, I would be less of a man if I didn't go into that apartment. If it becomes available to us, if I should go back now, if I don't go back now, I'll be letting down the 13, other, 13 million other Negroes in this country. Talk about brave. So he saw it as his uh, responsibility to try to integrate and you know stand up for his rights exactly and so if you didn't get if our listeners didn't get the the vast scope of what happened they heard correctly a crowd stormed a family's a many families apartment only to attack one family but everything was destroyed they destroyed everything in their path and set their belongings ablaze on the front yard. Mm. Now, when the fire department arrived, the crowd threatened them if they intervened with the fire. Okay, so we have officials of the city coming to take care of a fire, which the fire department is supposed to do, and the people intervene and block their duly yeah, they appointed. They threaten the fire department with violence, but don't give the, the fire department too much of a pass. Now, as the riot continued over four days, the sheriff showed up. The sheriff deputies asked the firemen to turn the hoses on the rioters. We've seen that happen in oh, civil sure. rights, you know, riots, but they refused. They said, we can't turn our hoses onto these rioters unless the fire lieutenant, who was mysteriously unavailable, gave them the okay. Okay, so... 
they can't put out the fire, but they also can't stop the rioters from making fires. So, or they refuse to. This so is, is incredible. Is it can't or is it or won't? won't. <laughs> the situation appeared to be out of control. So out of control. I mean, after four days, they finally dubbed it out of control. <laughs> that the county sheriff, John E. Babs, asked Illinois governor at the time, Adelaide Stevenson, to send in the Illinois National Guard. Now, that had not been done since Red Summer of 1919. So this was serious business. This was very serious. As 600 troops arrived at the scene, the rioters fought the the National Guard. But armed with bayonet, rifle butts, and tear gas, the troops ended the riot by setting up a 300 meter, which is a 328 yard perimeter, around the entire block in which the riot was in progress. Now, let me get this straight. These were white people rioting. These were not black people tearing up a neighborhood. These were white people trying to keep black African-Americans out of a apartment. You're right. And I will ask the question that's always asked when black people riot. Why do you want to tear up your own neighborhood? (laughs) Good question. Good question. Okay. What's next? Now, now the Clarks never got to spend one night in their home. Now, you would think after this mass destruction, the National Guard, the fire uh, brigade, the police, the sheriff, the governor, all being involved, that someone in the group of rioters would be charged with something and go to jail. That's how that works. Uh, Well, that's how it's supposed to work, but um, I think we're going to hear otherwise. Well, a total of 118 men were arrested, no women, no teenagers. Um, They were arrested um, for the rioting, but none were indicted. But there were people who were indicted. The rental agent who helped the Clarks move in, Mrs. DeRosa, the Clarks, and the NAACP attorney who represented them initially for the court order, they were all indicted for causing a riot. And for Mrs. DeRosa and the rental agent, they were charged for even renting the apartment to the Clarks because the the court felt that if you never rented the apartment, there never would have been a riot. I feel like I'm in Alice in Wonderland. This is so turned around, so convoluted, so bizarre, but uh, that's how things went when you had these situations. So uh, what else? Well, after national outrage for that kind of weird, you know, indictment against the Clarks and those who helped them get the apartment, the United States Attorney General launched an investigation in the incident and the charges were dropped, but charges were put on the fire chief whose firefighters refused to direct their water hoses at the riders when requested by police and the town's president. Now, the police chief and two officers were also fined a total of $2,500 for violating uh, Mr. Clark's civil rights, which would equal to about $25,000 in today's money. And this federal prosecution was hailed as a courageous achievement since it was rare that civil rights and housing had stirred up acts by federal officials. 
Well, I, yeah, but think of all those 4,000 to 6,000 people that stormed the apartment building and all we have is a handful of elected or, or appointed officials. Pretty and much. The damage done was way more money-wise than what those men were, were actually fined for. Now, the Cicero race riot of 1951 lasted several nights and it included about two to 5,000 people, which people would say. So the numbers vary, but it's upwards to 5,000. But it was the first racially, well, race riot or racial issue that was broadcast on local television. So instead of uh, only black newspapers like the Chicago Defender covering the story or the twisted narrative that came along with some white run publications, people were able to sit in their living rooms and watch the horror unfold. And those that saw it were actually outraged. And sadly, it was a harsh reminder to those moving from the South to escape Jim Crow that the Northern states had their own brand of racism that they were more than willing to share. Whew. Well, Courtney, Courtney, yeah, yeah. It's hard to imagine that type of anger and abuse directed against anyone simply because they wanted to move into a neighborhood. And Jim Crow in the South at least people knew what lines you couldn't cross. Uh, obviously, the people in the North, they got a rude awakening when they tried to cross those racial housing lines. Now, housing-related crimes had physical, financial, and psychological impacts on all their victims. And I would wonder what happened, you know, if we know uh, about the Clarks in terms of their mental health, how they uh, fared after all of this. And uh, because, you know, when these types of situations happen, just like the Clarks, individual families were usually isolated pioneers like them who bore the full brunt of these crimes and the harm that they suffered were often severe and long lasting. Uh, not only did it affect them, though, these attacks served as warnings to prevent others from attempting the same move. And that's another form of terrorism. Now, on top of all that, Black African-Americans received no redress for their losses. And I'm sure that was the case with the Clarks, that they received very little uh, compensation. And as we saw in this situation, uh, as it happened in so many other situations, no arrest, no punishment. And um, because of that, people would figured, hey, we can keep on doing this since nobody gets arrested, nobody gets punished. Let's just keep on running people out of the, out of the neighborhood. And that was a sad, like, norm. Now, I know we look at these uh, situations in places like Cicero, Chicago, Baltimore, and other places. They get a lot of light shined on them. But were there other cities where terrorism like this kind of went unchecked? Oh, there were. There were many of them, Courtney. And we're, I, I just want to go decade by decade and just give one example from each decade. Let's take 19, the 1900s. In 1911, East Hollywood, 12 residents burst into a Black African-American home and ordered them out. Now, these were residents. They weren't even the police. They, they had no official reason to do this. They just, oh, why are you here? The home invasion. That's what it was. It was, a, oh, oh my. Yeah, let's go to the 20s, 1925. A Detroit mob of 5,000 whites burned uh, or threatened to burn down a Black African-American's home uh, and 87 whites hurled bricks through windows and ripped the tiles off the roof. 
So you, you imagine? climbed onto my roof. Oh, this is, oh my goodness. Okay, that was the 20s. Let's go to the 30s, 1930s, Atlanta. Whites burned down houses under construction and burned new homes. So the homes weren't even built and they were burning them down and tearing them down. 1940, let's go to Dallas. Uh, Dallas, there was there were so many, there were so many bombings and attempted bombings. Um, a, a gang of 500 through rocks, smashing windows and damaging furniture and dishes in, in the 40s in, in, in Dallas. Let's go to uh, 1950s. Philadelphia, outside of Philadelphia, the suburb of Levittown, terrorizing, taunting, smashing windows, cross burnings. Let's go to the 1960s, 1969, Valparaiso, threatening phone calls and mail every day for a year to a Black African-American family. Who has that type of energy to, re is there like a post-it note? Like, okay, today's <laughs> the day I have to call and harass my Black neighbor. Well, like remember those women and children. So they probably had sort of like a phone tree. Like going. Oh, you're on the schedule for today. <laughs> right, today your turn. Like, that is horrible. And I know where Valparaiso is. And I grew up in Indiana for a large part of my childhood as well. And there were parts of Indiana that you didn't go to. And Valparaiso was one of the, and now I know why, but now that is just know. a waste of energy. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what you could have gotten done in that uh, year's time right. rather than making threatening phone calls and writing threatening mail? But anyway, it happened. Well, and Carol, there is another side to this coin and it's called gentrification. And it is going on a lot in predominantly African, Black African-American neighborhoods. And it's happening at a rapid pace in big cities. My husband who grew up in Harlem um, for his teenage years is always shocked when he gets off the train. He always says, this is not the Harlem that I grew up in. But what happened uh, when what happens when whites move into predominantly black neighborhoods and spaces? Have black uh, residents reacted and resisted in the ways that whites have done to them when the tables returned? Well, that my dear niece, that's a very good question. Um, I don't think there's any in-depth academic research into those questions, but there isn't even anecdotal evidence of criminal behavior designed to expel these new white neighbors. This is in stark contrast to what you told us about Cicero and that list of decade by decade offenses that I just shared with our listeners. Um, Gentrification is another way of displacing Black African-Americans. Uh, it's not violent displacement, it's not terrorism, but it certainly is economic displacement. Now, whites have moved into predominantly Black areas either through publicly funded redevelopment programs uh, and, re and gentrification. Now, I believe, and you probably do would believe this too, it would be unimaginable that black African-Americans would bomb the home of a white family moving into quote unquote, their neighborhood, as we've seen over the decades that happened to black African-Americans. I think we all know how that would end, but you can see the effects of gentrification all over, like I said, historically African-American neighborhoods and what we would consider 
sacred spaces. For example, Howard University, one of the beacon HBCUs, Chadwick Boseman, Felicia Rashad, uh, so many people, Angela Bassett, called this school home and our alumni in the middle of Washington, DC. Now the neighborhood around the area is slowly becoming, or not slowly, quickly becoming gentrified. And the new neighbors had started using Howard University's quad yard area as a dog park and public park. And a lot of people were not picking up after their pets. Now, after staff and students began to explain how disrespectful this was, they were met with feigned confusion and in some cases, out and out disrespect. For example, one white resident of the nearby Bloomingdale uh, neighborhood said, they're in a part of DC, so they have to work within DC. If they don't wanna be within DC, then they should move the campus. Now this attitude is not surprising. The same thing happened with a store that played go-go music, which is an African-American form of music born from DC. If you have ever done any type of line dance or anything like that, or remember the movie School Days, you've heard go-go music. But a a high rise next door with a T-Mobile store Uh, pretty much complained about the music and they should turn it down, turn it down. The residents did fight back by throwing a huge go-go block party. All right. (laughs) There is a documentary on it and I will cite it in the show notes of how those residents fought back using art and to get people to understand that this was their neighborhood. Well, I'll tell you, as your generation would say, I'm down with that. I agree that throw that party and uh, it's it definitely beats violence and leaving feces on the walls of somebody's home. Um, Now, just like we saw in the many instances of racial violence involving housing, uh, gentrification begins with one or two few white families moving into an area. And the process that we see through gentrification really does reflect disparities in power and resources, with whites having the ability to buy into an, uh, into an upgrading uh, neighborhood and then change its racial composition. Um, then you hear those attitudes like the one you just described about Howard University and the go-go music. These people move in and now they think this is their property. This is their land. This is their neighborhood. Now, Black African-Americans have used legal strategies, including protest and litigation to, requ- uh, to resist this gentrification process. But what we need to remember is they haven't and probably will not take the violent method of intimidation and murder so often used against them when the positions have been reversed. And don't forget, Anne Carol, in addition to gentrification, another way Black African Americans have been bullied and displaced out of their neighborhoods is through urban renewal. And that's a very polite way of saying tearing down and disrupting neighborhoods with highways, splitting them, uh, splitting them apart. And didn't that happen to the neighborhood that you grew up in? 
It sure did. In Little Johnstown, Pennsylvania, uh, the uh, city fathers thought it was best to run a highway right through our neighborhood on Bedford Street, which was occupied predominantly by Black African-Americans and uh, dispersed our neighborhood various places around the town. And uh, it was a sad day. We had everything in that neighborhood that we needed, but um, that highway came through there. Now, that that kind of uh, displacement was a result of the American Housing Act of 1949 and the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956, which displaced tens of thousands of Black African Americans, our family being one of them. Uh, these types of projects, they involve massive clearance or, or even partial clearance of an area. And sometimes whites moved into the newly created spaces. Now, just as with gentrification, Black African-Americans haven't had the power to resist the massive redevelopment highway programs that put the law, the resources, and the power of the federal and local governments behind them in order to uh, enforce eminent domain and tear down these neighborhoods. So it's quite a, a quandary. It's, you're between a rock and a hard place. You can't fight for your no, your own neighborhood. And when you try to move to another neighborhood, you're faced with violence and just out and out threat, almost threat of death in another place. You're exactly right, Courtney. And what we've seen over time, we've moved from the violence uh, of displacement through uh, up through these legal, quote unquote, legal methods of displacement. Now, though these violent attacks, murders, terroristic acts, force removals, some of them happened decades ago and some of them just, you know, not that long ago, their economic impact is what we need to remember as well as certainly the, the loss of life. That economic impact is widespread and it's last, la uh, long lasting. And it's still felt today in the stunning wealth disparity between white and black African-Americans. In 2019, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank did a study and they found that the typical non-Hispanic white family has a net worth of $188,200, while the typical non-Hispanic Black African-American family's wealth was $24,100. That is enormous. It is enormous. And that gap stems in part from the historic destruction of Black homes, Black towns, and Black businesses, which hampered Black African-Americans' ability to amass financial assets, particularly housing. Housing is what you pass down to your children and grandchildren to help them build wealth. And what we've seen in a, uh, a report from 2013 gathered on families over a 25-year period, it found that whites were five times more likely to inherit than Black people. And among those receiving inheritance, white heirs got 10 times as much. Now, remember, the average American doesn't have a grandparent or great-grandparent whose home was burned to the ground and received no insurance or, or government aid. Now, some Black African-Americans kept all of their cash at home. 
because they did not trust white-owned banks. So they often lost their life savings and any other assets when their homes and businesses were destroyed. You can remember when we talked about the Slocum and the Coe massacre, people just left with their clothes on their back because they were being run out of town. Now, another way Black African-Americans lost in the real estate game is very recent. After the subprime lending crisis hit in 2007, about 2.5 million Americans lost their homes by 2009, with Black and Latino homeowners' foreclosure rates more than doubling that of their white counterparts. In 2019, Black home ownership hit its lowest rate since 1970, and a recent study shows Hispanics and African Americans must earn more than whites to live in affluent neighborhoods. Well, Courtney, so it goes on the show. There are many ways to lose ground when it comes to owning property. You can lose it through these terroristic threats and and, uh, riots and so on. You can lose it through this subprime lending. You can lose it when uh, the highway is run through your neighborhood. But basically what we see is that Black African-Americans consistently over time have lost property. They have lost money. And sadly, they have lost their lives. Now, sociology professor Chris Messer put it this way. There are plenty of really wealthy individuals in America today. They would not be wealthy if it weren't for their parents being able to give them wealth or put them in a good school or hand their business down. He estimated that the property lost in situations like the Tulsa race massacre would come to 200 million based on today's home values. So Courtney, in addition to Tulsa, there's no way to tell how much wealth has been lost to black African-Americans because of the hundreds of cases of race-related housing violence and murder like Cicero. According to Messer, entire communities of people were being effectively reduced to the lower class and they had to start completely over. And in every one of those instances that we've been talking about, that's what has happened to black African-Americans who have suffered domestic uh, terrorism over housing. Well, and Carol, that brings this episode to a close, but I think this, this series that we're doing speaks to the title of the podcast in our learning community, Why Are They So Angry? And that final quote, having to start completely over um, after being run out of their own homes um, by people with no authority to do so. But like I said, that brings this episode to a close. We'll be continuing on this series. But if you want to catch up on episodes, find us on the interwebs or just leave us a message or get some, you know, fun swag or take our course, make sure to visit our website, www.podpage.com. Why are they so That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.